what we have now is um, what's happened in so much of journalism is that with the loss of accessibility is a kind of adversarial relationship uh, between journalists who want to act like journalists and sports celebrities, you know, who want to keep their privacy and their stories to themselves. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. Our guest this week is the journalist and author Robert Lipsight. Lipsight is one of those living legends in journalism, covered Muhammad Ali from the absolute beginning. Uh, so, I mean, I wanted to get to that, the complexity of Ali, Ali's legacy, from the beginning to what the funeral was like in the United States. And the other thing I want to talk to him about, he is a talking head in what I think is one of the best documentaries ever made, OJ Made in America. Lipsight was friends with OJ, covered him, and we looked at kind of the enduring legacy of OJ, what he wrought on the culture, and how much uh, purchase OJ got. And one of my favorite books about sports uh, was Lipsight's 1976 book, Sports World, which looks at the role of sports in American culture. So we did a little song and dance about that topic as well, the commodification of leisure. So Lipsight is just a fascinating guy. So I hope you enjoy Robert Lipsight. I wanted to say that you wrote a book about Michael Jordan in 1994, and what do you think it says, I mean, with the documentary The Last Dance, that you have the only way to get access to somebody like this that so many people are interested in is that you need his participation in order for him to divulge the footage and to sit down and talk. Like, is that journalism or, or is it much more than just PR? Well, I think that it was beginning to happen in all phases of entertainment, yeah. you know, where you really uh, you know, had to go through layers of press agents. Uh, I, I covered the, the New York Rangers in 1994 when um, they won the Stanley Cup. I was a columnist for the Times then and, you know, didn't have any more particular access than anybody else. But I was able to, you know, go see Mark Messier, the star, and take him out for lunch, um, you know, just, you know, talking to him in the locker room. Hey, Mark, you know, how about the two of us having lunch would be, a, you know, a, a better interview? And he said, sure. Um, you know, I, and it, you know, I was glad to be able to do it, but I didn't realize how lucky I was and how different things would soon become. And soon after that, access, you know, became more and more difficult. And sports celebrities, you know, began to control their own narratives as movie stars and television actors, you know, had, had begun to do. Um, I think that, you know, Muhammad Ali may have been, you know, the very last uh, of the great athletes 
to really offer, you know, total accessibility. So, you know, what we have now is um, what's happened in so much of journalism is that with the loss of accessibility is a kind of adversarial relationship uh, between journalists who want to act like journalists and sports celebrities, you know, who want to keep their privacy and their stories to themselves. And, you know, and I'm not so sure it's such a bad thing. So when I'm when I'm breaking into this business 60 years ago, there was total access. We flew on the same charter planes as athletes, stayed in the same hotels, drank in the same hotel bars, um, waltzed in and out of the locker rooms, talked to them anytime we wanted. However, there was there was a covenant here, and the covenant was you have total access. You can talk to me. You know I'll tell you how I lost the ball in the sun uh, or whatever happened. Uh, but you really can't write personal stuff about me you know, unless you ask my permission. And certainly you'll never write about me uh, going, you know, up, you know, going, coming down to the lobby, you know, picking out some woman and going back up in the elevator with her uh, in the hotel. Um, mm. there'll be none of that. So that that's what it was. I, mean, I remember once in Milwaukee, a, a woman flew out of the second floor hotel window um, of the uh, of the Braves manager. And um, you know, it was never reported. And that was the deal. So uh, there was that kind of symbiosis between the writer and the athlete, and if anybody broke that covenant, um, he he just wouldn't be included in the next press conference. Something would happen, and the PR guy wouldn't call him. He'd be squeezed out. Guys wouldn't talk to him in the locker room. Well, um, I, it doesn't this dovetail in many respects. Like, I mean, the first time I can think of this politically was, was Gary Hart, that his private life became front page news and we went after politicians like what is the what are the pros and cons of this kind of reporting well i i i think that um in many ways the 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 way it is now this kind of adversarial relationship is is preferable uh look at the great scoops look at the great stories uh, that have been coming out of journalism the last few years. Yeah. Um, and and this at a time, I mean, Harvey Weinstein is a wonderful example um, of a guy, you know, he, you know hired, hired ex-Israeli Mossad uh, to try to intimidate witnesses, uh, try to beat down the reporters. Uh, it didn't work. But um, somehow, I think that's better uh, than uh, a situation in which reporters are in such complicity. I mean, good, you know, just go back to JFK. Um, you know, how many women he was fucking in the White House and how many reporters knew about it and the general idea that this was, you know, wink, wink, boys will be boys. We're not going to deal with it. Well, what else weren't they dealing with? Sure. You know, I mean, ultimately, I don't really care, you know, who he's banging, but, you know, I 
certainly think there must be a lot of other things that are slipping by the boards as well. Do you think that we lose in politics some really important good people who, you know, you know, where Trump has all of these allegations against him? There's many, many figures in the culture. John Lennon was open about beating women to Rolling Stone magazine. You don't really hear his name brought up with, with sort of the bad behavior of, of celebrities with the Me Too movement because they're, they're likable people, whereas some people, one, you know, Al Franken is tanked um, in ways that a lot of Republicans aren't. Like, are, are we preventing some people who may be in their private life, I don't mean criminal conduct, but private life that they don't want aired, preventing some, well, sure. some good, good people? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's bias on both sides. I mean, you know, John Lennon um, is a global saint. I yeah. think that um, if you kind of brought up, you know, any of the dark side of his life, you'd get beaten up. Uh, <laughs> right. I mean, nobody wants to hear that. I mean, Al Franken was obviously set up, and I guess he must have understood that uh, even though he should have called for a Senate ethics investigation, which might well have cleared him, um, he he couldn't really go up against that wave of uh, you know faux feminist movement. I think I think there are a lot of uh, parts of the Me Too movement that you know deserve scrutiny. Uh, I think I think uh, on while I, I'd be very happy, um, you know, despite everything else, I'd be very happy for a real investigation into Tara Reid. I mean, that really smells, you know, like setting up Biden. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it's, I, I do think, I mean, for all of the good that happened with the likes of Weinstein and, and so many other figures being exposed for for conduct that I think was rampant and totally accepted, it is a little frightening. Like once a Biden is accused of something, that stink is on you for the rest of your life, even yeah. if your entire life has been clean. The accusation, there's no way to disprove it. Her allegation, she doesn't have a date or a, a place, so he can't say I was somewhere else when she's claiming it happened. It, it's kind of a it, 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 there's an amorphous quality to the accusation that is very frightening if you were under that that scrutiny um, where there's just no way to disprove it. Um, right. Well, Bryn, Bryn, I think that first of all, nobody's no man is clean, um, sure. and you know I've always considered myself a feminist, but I I, I really think that we have not really looked at this in any kind of clear way. Like everything else in our lives, we've politicized it and also used it for advantage and disadvantage. Um, do I, I think men have acted badly? Yeah, I, I really certainly have. And I, you know, I've written about it. I've written about, you know, my experiences at the Times and at CBS News with, you know, real assholes in power. And the the way that, you know, they really specifically intimidated women writers, women producers who really had to take their shit if they wanted to get assignments. But right. uh, on, on the other hand, of course, there have been excesses on the other way. And I think what really complicates the issue, you know, is, you know, 
we have this incredible vicious buffoon uh, who models, you know, the worst kind of uh, male behavior. I mean, it was just locker room talk. I grabbed her pussy. Well, that's bullshit. You know, go into locker rooms. That's not how they're talking. They're talking about their stocks and bonds. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, I can't. I can't think of the times like you when we're shadowing a high-profile athlete. I don't recall too many times them speaking in that way at all. I mean, I and and like right. you, like you were saying earlier, in terms of, I've heard athletes who've introduced me to their wife, and very quickly after just meeting them, right. they talk about mistresses and that kind of thing. But I'm not hearing about bragging about sexual assault or sexual no. harassment. That's I've never come across that, which isn't to say it doesn't happen, but I just, it's a very weird argument that, that men are privately bragging about crime. Well, actually, actually, here is, here is the other side from, from your side of the room. So yeah. this is in the middle 70s. I'm uh, shadowing Ali, who is not the champion at the moment, but is doing these um, exhibition bouts. And uh, he does one in Florida in a meadow, <laughs> you know, a um, a ring is set up in a meadow, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds of people. And at the end of the exhibition bout, he goes back to his trailer where, you know, which he used as a dressing room um, to, to you know, change his clothes for the flight home. And uh, he goes into the trailer and suddenly everybody who had been with him, you know, Angelo, the, you know, the masseuse, the cut man, you know, are thrown out of the trailer. He leans out of the trailer, points to three women, beckons them to come in. Ten minutes later, he sends two of them out of the trailer. And for the next 15 minutes, the trailer rocks violently. Huh. Okay? Uh, so I'm I'm standing out there at, with my with my little notebook writing things down and uh first Angelo and then some PR guy and somebody else come up to me and they say, Bob, you know, um whatever you do, don't write about this. Please don't write about this. You know, we really like you but if you write about this Muhammad will never speak to you again. You know, and I'm I'm really sad about this because um you know, he's been he's kind of been my bread and butter through the early part of my career and this yeah. this is it. But hey, what the hell? So I'm I'm doing this as a magazine piece for the New York Times magazine. So I go back and I write this piece about, you know, Ali in exile and what he's been doing and I end the piece with the trailer rocking violently. Mm. And the the title of the piece, uh, which I did not write, of course, was a copy editor, was The King of All King Returns. Huh. Okay, so now it's six months later, and they, they I get an assignment to go cover him on set for his movie, The Greatest. Yeah. And, I, and I go down there, and I, I'm, you know, I kind of feel bad that he's not going to talk to me. But you know on a movie set there are so many egos and so many people who will talk to me. You know, the writer, the other actors, et cetera, the producer. 
that, uh, you know, I'll get some story out of it. So I have set foot on the set for maybe 10 minutes when he spots me. Ali spots me. He runs over, gives me a hug, and says, King of all kings, you got that one right. Whoa. Whoa. So, um, you know, I, I, so, you know, that's not locker room talk, but I think that, you know, we were living in a different age. Uh, and, um, you know, eventually more and more people really talked about the fact, you know, that he did really, you know, bang his brains out on the road. Um, and this is a married guy almost throughout that period. Yeah, he's always been, he's always married. (laughs) Who is getting all of these kudos for his moral position in avoiding Vietnam based on his religious beliefs. Right. And yet, in another, like it's very a la carte how he's choosing to be reverent to to the tenets of his faith. I wonder, I wonder if for, when you look at the way he was deified in 2016 after his death, I mean, that was like a state funeral. Right. Um, how was he different? You were there when he was in Miami. You were covering him when the Beatles came over, right? You were in that gym. Right. As the, so how, how was he different in person over the years versus the image of him that has been created with his legacy as the secular saint? Well, I think that what happened, Bryn, was uh, he began to be a secular saint as long as he, as soon as he was no longer dangerous. Mm. Um, let's not forget how vilified he was um, in the in in the middle and late sixties. Sure. Uh, certainly, by the what would be considered the top rank of sports writer, Red Smith. Jimmy Cannon, you know, these guys really pounded on him um, as basically not only uh, for his political stand, but in a sense for being an ungrateful Negro. Yes. I mean, their their idea of the Bo idealism, you know, a black American athlete was Joe Lewis, who was around at that time, actually. You know, he was a fixture in, in Sonny Liston's camp. But, um, you know, uh, Joe Lewis, who probably slept with every important white actress in Hollywood uh, and claimed never to have touched a white woman, uh, right. also, you know, um, you know, hardly ever talked, certainly didn't try to grasp the narrative, was extremely... Uh, 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 obeisant to uh, sports writers, and, you know, and say, you know, God's, you know, we're on God's side, and all his wonderful quotes. And of course, at the end, went mad, you know, probably from having to live like that. Um, but in the very beginning, you know, Ali, uh, from the from the start, from that first Liston fight, he was attacked by uh, mainstream journalism for every reason, including the way he fought, which was unorthodox, you know, um, you know, leaning back instead of bobbing and weaving. How could he do that? You know, right. it's, it's against the tenets of democracy. But um, <laughs> so, uh, and, and then, of course, he was very breezy 
with sports writers. Uh, and, and what happened was from the very beginning, there was a real generational schism. The older sports writers um, despised him, despised his uh, irreverence toward, you know, their exalted position, uh, despised, you know, the fact that he belonged, that he renounced Christianity. Um, And and all of us were really also put off by the fact that, you know, he was espousing a kind of uh, segregationism, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, head of the Nation of Islam, you know, was, was supposedly, and I think it was true, uh, in discussion with um, segre- white segregationists, you know, to to move uh, to, to move the cult, you know, <laughs> to some corner of some southern state to get land of their own. Um, so, in almost every way, and, and probably his. Uh, his, his screwing around was the least of it. Uh, Ali was totally politically incorrect. He was not of the civil rights movement. Uh, he was certainly not of the women's rights movement. Uh, his religion flew against mainstream Christianity. Um, but um, I, I think we younger sports writers um, – to our credit or discredit, we're just kind of thrilled at the idea. It was some, here was somebody fresh and new who we liked, who we understood, who was yeah. kind of around. I mean, I was kind of around his age, you know, when I went down there. So this was all kind of wonderful for me. And then, of course, the the great career move in my life is when he won the championship and I became the boxing writer. I mean, I was not the box. I was a feature writer at the Times, and I was sent down to cover that first fight. Because the real boxing writer, at a time when boxing was a very important sport, the real boxing writer didn't think his time was well spent flying all the way to Miami for a one-round knockout. Huh. Fascinating. I love that about Ali, that so many of his biggest fights, he was a dramatic underdog. That's so unusual relative to most other heavyweight champions, that, that Ali... Part of what makes him so spectacular, I think, his legacy is, you know, people always underestimating him. Right. I mean, he was a wonderful boxer. He was an unorthodox boxer. Um, so much was, you know, dependent on on his speed. But, I mean, people forgot he could take a punch. Boy, yeah. And I think one of the reasons, you know, for his you know, tragic decline um, was that, uh he really took a beating in the gym more than any other heavyweight uh, of note I've ever seen. Um, you know, they, he took a punch. Yeah. Uh, he was toughening himself up. I mean, you know, towards the end, it was really apparent um, that he was slurring his speech. He was slowing down. He was barely, you know, functioning on a lot of levels. But uh, a lot of that had to do with the fact that, you know, he let himself get beat up. Yeah. And and let me get a sense also, because I, I think it's fascinating when we look at how Martin Luther King is revered in the culture now relative to his standing with white America in his time. Uh, I think we forget how hated a figure Ali was in his time. I just want to get a sense from you. How did white America feel about Muhammad Ali, let's say, coming after the, the first two Liston fights? 
um, I mean, how much hatred or terror was there that this was somebody that white supremacists or some wacko would want to assassinate as, you know, around 68, so many of these cultural icons are being taken out by crazed lone gunmen. Right. And don't, don't forget uh, Malcolm X, uh, who, who certainly was taken out with what looks like FBI compliance. But yeah. um, I, I think that in, in all those ways, these guys were really seen um, as dangerous, as, as really men who could put, and this, of course, was untrue, men who could put, you know, thousands, millions of black men on the street with guns who would overthrow America. I mean, this was, you know, this was nonsense. This was a, I, I remember that when uh, Ali refused to step forward, one of the government spokesmen said, you know, privately, in private conversation to me, he said, you know, if we allow him to get away with this, we might not just be able to put together an army. No black man will serve. Well, I mean, the point was they didn't understand, you know, black people in America. You know, I mean, it, it wasn't even as if, you know, they were you know, going to follow Muhammad Ali anywhere. A, a lot of black people uh, really felt that he was a, sh a shameful braggart. A lot of middle class blacks hated Ali. They certainly lined up uh, behind Joe Frazier. But... Um, I think that once, you know, Ali was seen as neutered in a way, he, you know, he became like John Lennon. He became a, a secular saint. He became, I think it was, it was um, David Remnick's line, he became America's teddy bear. Mm. I think that's kind of horrible in its way, but um, extremely accurate. Um, well, well, and I, want, I wanted to ask you also is, it's fascinating to me the way Ali used race against Joe Frazier, where you have a sharecropper from South Carolina who grew up poor, who grew up in, in a much more um, relatable way to the stereotypical African-American experience, especially from a generation before of, of working class, I mean, just shortly out of slavery, segregation, that kind of thing. And to say this champion of, of African-American culture that Ali later became, black is beautiful, et cetera, to, to take much more African-American features and say, look how ugly he is, look at his nose, look at his skin, look at the way he talks. Um, I just find it fascinating using race against Frazier in such a way that Frazier's children would be bullied in school for being the white man's champion Etc. Like, what's what is that about exactly? Do you think? Well, you know, there there are a lot of things about Ali that you know are are no longer discussed since he's a, an American saint. But right. certainly, is, that was that was absolutely despicable. Um, and you know, w when you kind of braced him on that, I said, "Hey, man, I, uh, how how could you, you know, say shit like that about?" Joe Frazier's hair and nose and, you know, the gorilla, come on. Right, right. You know, uh, later on he would say, well, I, I just did that for box office. 
Well, man, if you did that for box office, that's even worse. Mm. I mean, you're kind of measuring his early life against Frazier's is really interesting because, you know, Frazier really was the all-American boy. I mean, the image I have of him is his father uh, had lost one arm or it was crippled. I forget. Right, right. Yeah. And, 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 you know, little, little 12 year old Joe was the other arm on the plow handle. Yeah. You know, um, meanwhile, at 12 years old, as, as the legend goes, Muhammad Ali becomes a boxer because somebody just stole his expensive new bicycle, which he had stupidly, you know, left on the street. Okay. Right. So does that tell you something about, you know, the difference between these two guys and how they were brought up? And, you know, the, the sad part is I don't think Joe ever really got it. He hmm. never really kind of understood that um, Ali, Ali was somebody who was in many ways early on created by the sports press because he, like Donald Trump, was totally accessible and could fill up your notebook uh, or your cassette in 10 minutes. You'd right. always walk away with a story, even if it was crazy or not true or whatever. So I, I think that, that with creation, I think that what was interesting about Ali was how he evolved. I mean, you know, part of that, as you pointed out, that, you know, the 2016 beatification ceremony at his, at his death was, you know, that here was this American hero of, you know, integration and everything else that's good, vanilla ice cream, uh, who who kind of sprang full-blown. Well, that's not true. He was, you know, a narrow, ignorant guy who, from 12 years old, was in a tunnel of being a boxer, of making himself famous. His graduation from, a high, from high school was more or less a gift for winning the Golden Gloves. Um, the guy that we, you know, talked to in 1963 and 1964 before he won the title um, you know, you know, we're still talking about the Honorable Elijah and the seven-foot uh, men on other planets who would come down and uh, rescue the faithful on Judgment Day. It right. really wasn't until his title was taken away and the only way he could make money uh, was was the college circuit where he started listening. I mean, he... You know, there's no question how bright he was. He was ignorant. But he was very smart, very bright, yeah. Yeah. and quick. And uh, he began listening to the questions that these college kids were throwing at him. In the very beginning, I remember, uh, I think the first time I went with him to a college campus was pretty soon after the, the exile in Berkeley. And he, you know, he was making kind of... Uh, disparaging remarks about the smell of marijuana in the air, uh, mm. about, you know, all the, the, the checkerboard romances, you know, interracial couples uh, out on the plaza. 
and a lot of kids just stood up and walked away. You know, screw this guy. Um, and it, and then his speeches were incredibly boring. You know, dogmas about you know, uh, you know, the nation of Islam. And I mean, he would tell me that the reason I was so smart was because I was Jewish and didn't eat pork. So sorry about that. But um, so so here was this guy who really kind of evolved. And, you know, by, by the time that he came back to boxing, you know, in the, in the late, the, in the early 70s, you know, he was a far more formed human being. And he had even in some ways atoned uh, for turning his back on Malcolm X, which I, at the time, probably, um, you know, didn't, didn't help Malcolm's chances uh, to, to live. But um, so, but he evolved, and, and it would have been really very interesting to see what he would have evolved into. But of course, in this you know incredibly cruel irony of fate, you know this most garrulous and beautiful people, you know becomes uh, frozen and mute just when he was starting to get interesting. Oh, that's fascinating, and and I agree with you. I mean, to see him debate the likes of William F. Buckley. I mean, he won Buckley over. He, right. you know, he he was imme- immensely compelling in some of the speeches where you can see him listening to people. Yeah. I agree, um, but but I mean, also, I mean, I was curious to ask you. Mark Cram did a book about Ali, focused on the Joe Frazier third fight, the thrill in the Manila. Ghost of, yeah, the Ghost of Manila. Yeah, and he paints a portrait of Ali that definitely was not the Tom Hauser portrait of Ali. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, you know, I've talked to Hauser a lot about that over the years, and Hauser just thinks that Cram just uh, had a real chip on his shoulder about Ali, that, you know, he, he really takes issue with the book quite strongly. But I wondered... How much, How did you interpret that that presentation of Ali, that version of Ali that Cram offered? Did it feel well? I, you know, I, I understand where both of them are coming from. Uh, my first reaction, of course, you know, um, which I think was wrong, uh, because I, I felt so alive. You remember, Muhammad Ali made my career. I, yeah. had, I had great affection for him. I could always go back to him for a story. Uh, we had our fallings out a couple yeah. of times, but um, so I, I had a, you know great good feeling for him, uh, and I thought that you know that Mark, you know who who had his troubles in his time, it was kind of a you know a wonderful writer and a flawed human being, yeah. um, really took what I thought was an extreme position, but I, I think there was a lot of value in Ghosts of Manila. I think that he, you know, he pointed up a lot of things, including the unfair disparagement of Joe Frazier. And he was, of course, uh, a Joe Frazier uh, advocate. I, I think his his son, you know, just recently wrote a Joe Frazier biography, if I'm not That's mistaken. That's right. That's right. Yeah. But um, I, I think that, you know, probably Mark went too far in, in his anti-Ali thesis, but there really is a lot of, um, I think there's a lot of thoughtful and important points 
that that Mark made. Uh, Ali was not a perfect human being, uh, although you know he was certainly one of the most delightful people I've ever been around. Yeah. Um, but I mean, yes, he he certainly was um, uh, paradoxical at at the very least. I mean, that's what makes him so complicated and so interesting. Um, but he was he was changing, and I, I said that you know you know there have been people in in American life, uh, Robert Kennedy, Malcolm X, probably even Dr. Martin Luther King, who were really in the process of personal evolution into what looked like it could have been something immensely interesting and useful to America. You know, who were kind of cut off, you know, before they could be. Yeah. Well, and and I wanted to I wanted to shift because I mean we began with Michael Jordan and him looking after his legacy with this hagiographic eight episode ten episode rather um, documentary about a season, um, but a look a look kind of a kind of backstage pass into who he is and the famous quote. Um, why not speak up to uh, an African-American running for Congress, I believe? Well, because Republicans buy sneakers, too. Um, boy, that's different from, from what we value. Well, in yeah, yeah, but Muhammad Ali. You know, let, let's, let's, um, let's thank Ali for that as well. Yeah. So um, Ali, the heavyweight champion of the world, Mr. Man, uh, at a time when boxing is very important and the heavyweight champion is considered, you know, the most masculine guy on the planet, he is stripped from his title and he's not able to fight for three years. You know, White, Whitey just, you know, stomps Mike in the same way that they stomp um, John Carlos and Tommy Smith, who raised their fists. In the same way, you know, that they lynch and shoot. So what is the lesson to the next generation of athletes? Well, shut up and dribble. The next generation of athletes realizes, okay, Big Whitey is going to let me make as much money as I want as long as I stay in my lane. And I think that what we saw right after that was the slow shift of athletes who had come through the 60s, many of them college athletes who'd been, you know, somewhat radicalized or at least woke on college campuses, you know, are now realizing that, you know, Big Whitey's not going to let me do this. Uh, I just have to take care of myself. Look after number one. Well, and uh, until... And, and that's and that's exactly what they did. And and the uh you know, the apex of that is Michael Jordan. And I just wanted to ask you before we get to Jordan, isn't there some real connective tissue with what O. J. Simpson was able to achieve in terms of that's going that's that's a, that's a brilliant point. Because O. J. Simpson was America white America's antidote to Ali, right. Jim Brown to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, right. uh, to Bill Russell, to the black athletes who did 
try to stand up. Here is O.J., what Harry Edwards would call the ultimate grinner. You know, he just grinned. Uh, I mean, I mean, O.J. was um, the most amenable uh, athlete I've ever interviewed or hung out with. I mean, uh, he was wonderful. He was totally tuned to uh, white America. Uh, I mean, and and his, you know, his uh, Oscar-winning documentary, which obviously he had no control over, yeah. Uh, was brilliant in, in pointing all of that out. What did you make of that documentary? I, w- I mean, you're in that documentary. And, um... I'm in that documentary, and um, they, they interviewed me a lot. I was very involved for a long time. And I also, um, you know, I went to the festivals and, huh. and spoke for that documentary. I thought it was brilliant. I think there's no question it was the best sports documentary ever made, you yeah. know, including Hoop Dreams, and, um, you know, maybe one of the best documentaries, period, ever made. It was absolutely, you know, brilliant in its way. And and that whole idea of made in America was exactly what it was. I mean, the idea of um, O.J., you know, running through airports and little old ladies screaming, O.J., uh, he was... Uh, a black man who made us comfortable, and he really did, you know, obscure the angriness of Jim Brown and others. And O.J., by the way, was no dummy. He understood that, and and he played that. And, uh, you know, it was always interesting to see O.J. with, like, white network executives who loved to hang around him because he kind of threw off this shower of testosterone and maybe mm. made everybody, you know, seem so ugly. <laughs> well, I mean, I think one of his best friends in that documentary makes the point of recognizing that is that O.J. had been just completely and thoroughly and irrevocably seduced by white America to the point where I'm not, I'm not black, I'm O.J., in a restaurant, like I'm even him using the N word. Well, I was I was there. I was the person he said that to. Um, right. <laughs> I'm sorry. And, You're quite right. Yeah, and but I mean, I, mean <laughs> I, I I would say that the seduction went both ways. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, sure. I I I think that OJ was you know, I mean, he made a lot of money and he was used and exploited in the sense you know uh, of, of, of white America you know selling. You know, but I think that O.J. was a pleaser. O.J. was extremely, uh, you know, you know, smooth and gracious. You know, he was really fun to be with. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that not quite as interesting as Ali, but certainly on that level of uh, just sheer, sheer niceness and and pleasure. And I think that um, he, you know, very carefully uh, did seduce, you know, white executives in white America. Yeah. Well, and what did you make in terms of, you know, the Jordan documentary we see gambling as a part of his life, um, very grievance-oriented person from his teenage years, just obsessed with grievances, seemed to drive him endlessly. But with O.J., I mean, 
they didn't interview his first wife, Marguerite, but there, there was some insinuation that he had been a batterer of women he was involved with, treated them like property from the beginning. Right. You know, so many run-ins with Nicole where she, you know, years prior to, to her death was suggesting openly to, to you know, 911 and that sort of thing, this guy's going to kill me. Did you have a sense behind that presentation that he offered, that, that beaming smile, that there was so much darkness lurking with women, with his dad being homosexual, apparently was a major trigger for him. Like, what did you sense about him behind no, the scenes? No, I mean, I, no, uh, I do not know that. Um, you know, all I knew was uh, here was this, a wonderfully <laughs> amenable subject. Huh. Um, no, and you know there was no real you know reason to you know investigate his past or anything like that. Uh, he was you know what he was. No, I I I, I had no sense of that. Was I remember when I went to see that film in the theater because they had to release it very briefly in the theater so that it would be in contention for an Oscar. They just yes, changed right, that rule. Yes, right. And and it was a fascinating lead up because a, a a friend of mine from Havana was dropping into New York and said, I really want to see you and hang out. And I said, well, I'm happy to, but I'm spending the next six and a half, seven hours at a movie right. theater watching an O.J. Simpson documentary. Yeah. And she was... 26 years old at the time, and she said, I don't, who the hell's O.J. Simpson? And I said, well, he used to be a football player, 1994, there's a murder trial and everything. She didn't yeah. know any of it. And we went to the movie theater, and the entire time up until when the curtains opened, she thought I was joking that it was a six-and-a-half-hour documentary yeah. on O.J. And somebody in front of us said, how are they going to do Is there going to be an intermission or something? Yeah. And I said, I believe there's going to be two. Mm-hmm. And that person who had no interest in sports, had no idea who O.J. Simpson was at all, was completely riveted for the entire duration of the film. And almost every 10 minutes saying, it can't get weirder than this, can it? And I was like, <laughs> so, I mean, how, how do you offer the trial of the century and have that kind of effect on America that lived through it. Like, what was it about that presentation and approach that allowed us to see the importance and relevance and context of this guy's journey being so singularly important to the culture? I mean, you can... There's a lot of connected tissue, I think, with OJ and and Trump, I thought, is the way he saturated us with celebrity triumphing everything about his character... Um, seems to seems to permeate this current ethos that we're in. At least it felt like that to me a lot in a very dark way. Right. Oh well, yeah. I mean, I remember I was eating uh, eating in a restaurant in Atlanta at CNN headquarters. I was down there for something when um, the uh, announcement of the jury's decision came through. And um, the, the the diners, who were you know overwhelmingly white, just sat there frozen. And the waitstaff and the kitchen was overwhelmingly black. Just came out 
you know, cheering and clapping. Mm. Uh, and I was kind of stunned, um, you know, because it, you know, it seemed pretty obvious that OJ had done it. Um, and I, I think that you know, the sense of the, it really got a sense of black and white in a kind of a, a, a new way through OJ. Through OJ, this guy who had made white people so comfortable. Uh, yeah. We loved OJ. Uh, he was funny in films. He was great in the commercials. You know, he just seemed like a, such a nice guy, which he was, you know, when he wanted to be. But, um, yeah, I, I think it, it kind of split everything open right there. And then, of course, now here we go again. Um, so um, Whitey got back. Right. You know, I mean, he... Or, what you know? The, the, they got him. They got him on a. They got him on a lesser charge, and ruined the rest of his life. Well, and now he's on Twitter pumping out golfing videos yeah. from Florida, <laughs> like as if none of this has happened. It's, it's right. It's just so profoundly surreal to see this guy. I mean, the further evidence that came out of the civil trial. Mm-hmm. But uh, that he's just acting as if you know everything's fine. I'm just just having fun, living the dream, playing golf, and I don't know. I mean, well, OJ's nuts. Yeah, I mean, maybe we just have to say, hey, you know, there are a lot of lot of very important people in our public lives who are crazy. Um, you know, we're we're living under one of them right now, but uh, so. And OJ has certainly uh, has managed to dissociate from reality for a really long time. Yeah, but it's but it's interesting, you know. Uh, you know, as you pointed out, it's interesting the way his life, uh, his public life, evolved because we needed him to counteract these black guys who were making us uneasy. Who right. uh, certainly in sports were not accepting their roles as entertainers. That they, they, they were not going to go for the minstrel show. Uh, they were going to be real people, even if we didn't like it. And, and we didn't like it. Well, and it seems like in the last several years, also, I mean, that you have Bill Cosby, you know, America's dad, and it comes out that he's a right. serial rapist. You have mm-hmm. Michael Jackson operating a theme park to, you know, Michael Jackson, I think, was the number two person after Hulk Hogan for dying kids to have visit them with Make-A-Wish Foundation. And he's molesting and raping, you know, God knows how many kids. It, It seems very challenging right now for America. A lot of these most iconic, famous people that have saturated the culture, that's what's behind their drive to get where they are are not the kind of things that we raise our kids to be as good, compassionate, caring, upstanding people. It's it's almost exactly the opposite. Do you think the society, either human nature has changed or the reporting has gotten better? Well, that's a good... Well, I, I don't think... I mean, if you look at most of the people who've stood out in the culture in terms of artists or, you know, 
we like eccentricity, we like interesting people, but what, what creates that? These are all freaks, right? These are people that don't follow the rules and are, are motivated to go their own way. And, it, it, you know, this whole thing now about trying to parse the art from the artist, whether it be Woody Allen, Bill Cosby, uh, you know, like we're saying earlier with John Lennon, um, it's not very often talked about that, you know, his his message of, of um, peace or renouncing possessions, this is a multimillionaire who, <laughs> there's, this is not a lot of good faith in the message and the signaling with the character of a lot of the people that are the most vocal. And now we have this other example with social media where now everybody gets to live in their own reality show and promote things and signal things. Um, so I don't know. I mean, human nature, no, I don't think human nature has changed at all, but we're, we're so much more conscious of ourselves as commodities and brands, it seems like. And I'm not sure why some people can get away with stuff that others can't. I mean, uh, I don't know how Mike Tyson, back to boxing a little bit, has been able to have, uh, he, he famously, or Fitzgerald famously said, there are no second act in American lives. I mean, here's Tyson at 53, and I'm seeing promotional videos of him hitting hand pads, talking about, I'm back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's making a return to the ring. Right. And this is somebody that came out of prison for convicted of rape, who was the most marketable athlete in history. Um, so what does that say about us that like if a commodity's value is commensurate with our desire for it, that we're totally fine that this is a guy that just went away for three and a half years? I mean, I, I you know, or Lance Armstrong, um, the most lucrative lie in the history of sports that you can come back better from cancer. Um, I think it's a challenging time to see what's behind these people. But, I mean, maybe you're right. Maybe they've always been this way. I mean, what do you, what do you think? Well, I, I think that we have to really find our way and take from them what's valuable to us and, you know, reject what's not. Um, I, you know, you hit a little sore spot there with Lance Armstrong, who is my hero. Yeah. You know? Um, so um, he... He comes back from stage four testicular cancer, which had gone to his brain. Yeah. Goes on to win the Tour de France for seven times, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, my, my feeling always was, you know, you'd be a fool to try to go up the Pyrenees without chemical help anyway. <laughs> but so, so here I am. Um, you know, going through chemotherapy for the same disease, you know, not not quite as bad uh, as his version, but you know, enough enough for a non-athlete. And um, his his model, his example, you know, is really very important to me. I mean, to the, to the fact that you know, in in my recovery, um, you know, going up a hill, you know. A really tough hill on my bike. I would just say Lance Armstrong, Lance Armstrong, Lance Armstrong, and he would always get me up the hill. Sure. Um, so um, when it came out, 
you know, that, that he was this, you know, serial cheater. No, I, I was not surprised. I mean, what the fuck? You think of all the chemo and drugs he had to take to recover from cancer, you know, um, why wouldn't he why wouldn't he shoot up a little more? And then of course, you know, when they stripped him of all his titles, you know, they had to go down to what, you know, the fiftieth finisher <laughs> right. you know, to find a first place guy because everybody, you know, was dirty in that sport. And um so, so I and I, I got involved with him briefly because we did um a, a couple of um, workshops, uh, panel, really panels, where I was a moderator and he and several other athletes talked about cancer. And, yeah. um, you know, and I, you know, he was, uh, I found him, uh, and, and I, I wouldn't accept money, of course, for doing it, uh, but the idea was that he would have to give me each time uh, an hour's full interview. Huh. Just to sit with me for an hour, yeah. and I I found him uh, remarkably unlikable, a tough, <laughs> you know, and gave gave me a hard time, you know, with questions. You know, I'm, I'm his accomplice here, uh, but um, yeah. So, so my feeling when I came to, and I got a lot of criticism uh, for you know, defending him in some ways. So, but my feeling was that. I can pick and choose within the character. Um, right. And, um, you know, there were things for which I adored Lance Armstrong and things for which I abhorred him. The same way with, with Tyson, whom I met when he was 13, you know, going up to, to uh, Cuss's place in uh, upstate. And um, I always found him, you know, smart and likable and you know, kind of cute, <laughs> cute with his lisp in a way, yeah. uh, hardworking. Um, and, but, the, you know, but you knew that there was a dark streak to him. I mean, he would go into Albany and race hell, and Cuss and, and Jimmy Jacobs had to bail him out. So, I mean, maybe your, your thesis that there is, you know, some, some kind of eccentric trade-off here, that you know, the, the people who really reach to some sort of brilliance, even genius, in the arts, in sports, in scholarship, whatever, uh, are different enough from us that they play by different rules, um, and and may not be uh, you know such such safe and likable characters. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's you know if you look at like the plays of Shakespeare, you don't see somebody who's saying democracy is really where we should be headed. Like it's somebody who has very little faith in sort of human nature right. um, throughout. And, uh, you know, a lot of Vincent van Gogh is the most beloved painter for people. I don't think if anybody reads those letters or finds out about his story that they would have really enjoyed meeting him in Arl. He was a detested person who children threw garbage at in the street like like so many of these people once they're at a safe distance they become domesticated in this very like you're saying with ali a kind of teddy bear like figure um there was a documentary on ben bradley where uh who was very close friends with jfk where it came out from 
um, people close to the, you know, Ben Bradley was very good friends with JFK, but JFK attempted to rape a woman. Right. Um, and it certainly didn't seem like it was the first time. It seemed like a real ingrained pattern of behavior for him. Um, but it conflicts with how much we like them and being in a nice period in our lives while they're in a position of power and authority. Um, or, or, I mean, I have, I have a couple of close friends who are Trump supporters. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, we'll talk about it. And they, they find, you know, his, his actions. They find so many things about him despicable. But on the other hand, you know, um, their his policies and some of his attitudes, you know, coincide with theirs. So sure. they'll go along with it just for self-interest. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that. And I, you know, we, just to finish with Lance, like, I mean, he he reached out to me once to ghostwrite for him. He asked if I'd ghostwrite his tell-all autobiography, and I did a little ghostwriting assignment for him. And it was really chilling that, like, on the one hand, he he read an article I wrote about somebody and said, you really write the way... I approach being on, on the bicycle. Like oh. there's a hatred and a fire yeah. in you that I, it, it, I just knew we needed to meet and talk about this. And I just thought, Jesus Christ, like this is one of the most hate-filled people I've ever met in my life. It was immediately apparent. Um, he was endlessly bitter and grievance-oriented towards any reporter who mm-hmm. had dared question him, especially the ones who were completely telling the truth. Yeah. I mean, like, like that's not... I don't take issue with what he's trying... I mean, I do take issue with him trying to prostitute his own narrative, which he's profiting, in the, you know, $125 million, um, but using it as a shield from people who are trying to serve the public by exposing this guy as a fraud um, who has a huge advantage in the ways in which he's cheating over lesser people that haven't had cancer because to question him is to, to question, question all cancer survivors. I mean, it's utterly despicable. Behavior. I mean, it's, it's so venal. And, yeah. and, and yet you have the most impeccably glistening narrative in the history of sports. I mean, he called himself within five minutes, cancer Jesus. They'll never mm-hmm. forgive cancer Jesus, Brim. And I thought this, for, for, for I mean, I have lots of family members that have died from cancer, friends, and all their, you know, everybody's been touched by it, but that this is the vehicle of what was projected uh, that generated all these millions of dollars of charity and everything, and, and to attack him was to attack those charities, was to attack the loved ones, was, you know, going after the narrative that you were using to help facilitate your recovery and healing, you know, from the same thing. I mean... I just thought, my God, this is so sordid and complex. And and I found him very smart, too. Like, I mean, there was a a real hero inside of him. He just, and he said it to me. He said, they hate me for all the, they hate me for all the reasons off the bike that they love me on it, which is I don't know how to shut off being a killer. I don't know Mm -hmm. how. That's all I am. Oh, he... I didn't realize he had that level of self-awareness. Well, and, and, and does that make him more frightening or less? 
<laughs> right? That's a wonderful question. Yes, both. Yes. You know, I'm 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 a little what I'm I'm less frightened of Trump's evil being shallow than bringing in the next thing that follows, which is a competent person with depth who yeah. represents the same things he does. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, like yeah. this guy doesn't know how to oversee anything and just flying by the seat of his pants um, in the same way he's been doing his whole life, just borrowing his dad's money, you know, $400 million to bankroll all his fuck-ups and 9,000 chances. Mm -hmm. But what if there's somebody who's really competent that does have depth and self-awareness navigating the controls? I mean, Jesus Christ. Wow. That's something to think about. It's amazing to think about. Well, and and so what's what's next with so you? That, that that's got to be pure evil. Right. <laughs> I don't mean to steer it into such a dark place, but it seems yeah. like the, the 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 tenor of some of these big characters we're talking about. One one thing I wanted to just last thing, if if you have a couple more minutes, sure. um, is we've talked about the people that you've covered and the way that they've been covered. But I noticed, I think, a few months ago, uh, I was listening to an interview with Bill Simmons talking to uh, a podcast, and he he has just sold uh, a series of podcasts, a network of podcasting to Spotify for, I believe, in the neighborhood of a quarter billion dollars. And mm -hmm. while he was being talked to, the interviewer was saying, this is the creator of the Billion TV show on, on Showtime, um, that Bill Simmons is the world's greatest sports writer. And clearly Simmons is the most popular sports writer, was, I think, for a period of time. Um, but this intersection of pop culture and sports, that, that has now become the sort of dominant way to cover sports in a way that really gets eyeballs and attention and traction. How have you felt with 60 years of covering sports that it's moved into this direction? Um, that it is. I mean, how do you see it changing and where do you see it headed? Well, first of all, I, I think that uh, it, it makes absolute sense. And, and Bill's genius, I think, is that he understood that as, as fans were beginning to lose you know, access to these athletes, as they were more objectified and commodified, um, that what was important was not really what they did or who they were, but how you felt about it. And I, I think this is what hmm. Bill Simmons pioneered more than anybody else, this kind of, you know, naval reflection. So, I mean, you know, typically... He, you know, Roger Clemens with with the Boston Red Sox would pitch a great game, which you know, brought the team back into contention or was kind of a, you know, kind of a, a revelatory sports moment. And Bill's reaction would be how good he felt, you know. So he would he would have a beer and he would call up his dad. And he would, you know, run down to the local bar and see his friends. 
and it would become, you know, a moment of a personal, you know, reflection and enjoyment, which was really how fans were more and more beginning to react to sports. I mean, I mean, fantasy leagues become more important than the real leagues they're based on. You know, right. your, um, your, your kind of personal, you know, reliance, uh, emotional reliance on your team or on your favorite players begins to become um, a, a motiv- motivating force in your life. And so, so Bill really saw that. And so he really wrote about himself. Uh, now, the connection there was that it was the same way that people wrote about popular music, you know, the, you know, from, from the lowest level, the Sinatra song that was playing on your car radio when you were getting laid for the first time in the back seat, uh, or any other kind of music that had important, um, an important milestone for you in your life. So, I mean, I, I think that he saw those two things. One, it was about you. And two, it was about you in the same way that, you know, popular music, you know, you know how you felt about MASH or Cheers or Friends or whatever you were watching on television, you know, movies that were important to you. It all became entertainment, and ultimately you were at the center of the entertainment. And I, I think he caught on to that before anybody else did, or at least, you know, he, he did it in a bigger way. You know, first, you know, first, uh, you know, the, the, the Boston sports guy, and then on ESPN, and then, you know, into Grantland and now Ringer and his own empires. You know, I, I, I think you know, that's what's been so important. I, I, I think he's a lackluster writer myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not enough of a basketball fan to be able to judge his insights, although they seem kind of mundane. I don't think he's a particularly good performer, but I do think that um, he did have this eureka moment where he discovered something, or at least he discovered a way of um, monetizing something. Do you think, I mean, what would you say is the the best impact of, of his identifying that, like, marketability of that perspective um, and lane that he created, and, like, what's the most adverse result of it going forward? Well, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, you know, sports and entertainment, you know, give people pleasure. They give people hope. They get them from week to week. Yeah. So that's a good thing for the most part. I mean, as long as it doesn't, you know, distract you from, you know, making from making the world better, from voting, from getting off your ass and doing something of value. Um, you know, I, I think that's all great. And he's, I think that Bill Simmons is, is part of the entertainment. I don't think that he's an adverse part of the entertainment. I certainly would never dream of saying that um, 
that his kind of sports writing is um, more or less worthy than your style, your hate-filled style, than your <laughs> style or, or my style. Uh, but um, it's terrific, and um, I'm glad he's making money. I mean, I'm always happy when somebody somebody who did it kind of himself, you know, makes money. Um, so, you know, it's cool. I'm, uh, I'm, I, I've never met him. We've talked a few times on the telephone when I was the um, ombudsman at ESPN. And I think that we had some, we had some disagreements, but I think that uh, yeah, he's really terrific at what he does. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I find I listen to some of his podcasts and I find some of what he's doing entertaining as well. I just wonder I'm just aware that the tenor the tenor of what the discourse is. I mean, I agree we need stuff to get us through the week. Entertainment feels good. I like a you know, a little piece of chocolate at night kind of thing. <laughs> right. Feel better or yeah. whatever. But I'm also aware that some of my favorite things to read uh, challenge me and push me and question my notions of things and make me uncomfortable. And I've never felt uncomfortable with anything that he's been responsible for right. covering. And I'm not saying that it has to. I'm just saying that uh, it seems that deep diving into things and challenging popular notions and stuff like that is getting harder and harder to do against stuff, you know, it, it's like trying to promote broccoli against really, really good candy. Like, it's, it's, it's yeah, a real but, losing I mean, But this is, this, is, this is everywhere, Bryn. I mean, um, the, and what you're talking about really is the, the danger that there's only so much space on the shelf. Yeah. And the same way James Patterson, you know, pushes off good books, um, maybe... Um, Barry Manilow, in his time, pushed off good music. Maybe, uh, maybe Bill Simmons, you know, um, who you know is, is not challenging and is, um, you know, ultimately, you know, for us, is not that interesting. You know, is uh, smothering other more interesting stuff. But I mean, that's going to be up to people um, to to judge and to make. Choices. Obviously, right. obviously, uh, people do make easy choices, um, simple choices, and um, he's he's part of it. I, I I don't think that I don't think he's as bad as he could be. I think he could be better. Uh, I think that what he did do, however, you can't you know you can't fault him for this. Is he put his finger? Uh, on the pulse, it was what people really wanted. They wanted help in relating their lives to their entertainment, and right. he did that. No, I get it. I mean, I think like the, the the most ungenerous interpretation of it that I feel sometimes is it sort of flatters the essential triviality of our lives, and we get to pretend like it's really important. And it does feel good. I mean, I watched a lot of really shitty TV through my childhood when I was depressed about things. Um, and it's interesting to tie that in with other smart people that watch that stuff to 
important books or important films or whatever. Right. Um, but it also seems, I always wonder, like once you have a quarter of a million dollars, it's a bit like to me like the career of, of like Steven Spielberg. I get that he's making stuff that makes it really enjoyable to, to put popcorn in my mouth and watch. And yet I kind of wonder in your early 70s and you're a billionaire, what do you have to say at this point? Like, now you can say anything. You can make anything. And I get, like, he's made Schindler's List and, and important films. But I, I just, I mean, I take your point that everybody, we choose what we buy and all of that, and that's, that's great. Like, I'm not against silencing anybody. But I sometimes feel a little bit of sadness that the attention span right. has been so and, and- diminished. Right, and I I don't think you're being self-righteous because the point is, uh, I hear you saying this, that that also pushes other things off the shelf. I mean, um, Steven Spielberg, Bill Simmons, James Patterson, they will always have their stuff, good or not, produced and put out there. And it's zero-sum. There are a lot of people whose better stuff will never get out there or never get the attention that it deserves. Um, but these guys have created their empires, and I think that, you know, a lot of what they do is really about sustaining those empires, about, you know, their enormous payrolls, all these people dependent on them, you know, all these various projects sure. and productions, you know, that they've got to keep up in the air and uh, and get, give the people what they want. Well, I mean, the, the people will ultimately take what they get. No, I, I do think that they, if given a choice, they'll usually make easy choices. But um, I think uh, that that's what is out there. Until it becomes too complicated and, you know, it's it's really easier to deal with martial arts than boxing. Uh, <laughs> right. Right? I yeah. mean, uh, it, it's really easier uh, to, to listen to a Bill Simmons podcast than... Uh, you know, to to than to read you or Dave Zirin or you know somebody else who's trying to make you know some point. Yeah, I I, I just remember watching a movie one time with with my girlfriend and it was showing. It looked like very cinema verite in a subway, and I said, God, like how the hell did they a major film sneak into the subway to film this? And she said, You're stupid. Like that's not in a real subway. And I said, How do you know? She said, nobody's on their phone. And I thought, oh, <laughs> of course, because everybody's reading newspapers in the New Yorker on a subway and nobody's on the phone. You know it's bullshit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, okay, Robert. That's... I wish I had more happier stuff to, to throw underarm at you to hit out of the park. Well, I think that we need to just be grateful that we're here. But uh, that's great. It was great fun to talk to you. I hope someday we'll get to meet again. Yeah, likewise, Robert. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Oh, sure. No, I think this was, this was great fun. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcón Suebi and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Thanks for listening. <laughs>